This is the Just a Bite podcast, giving you access to authors, influencers, and experts in the culinary field and beyond with your host, Malika Bowling. Hi, I'm Malika Bowling, and this is the Just a Bite podcast brought to you by the Association of Bloggers. Today, we are talking to Gabby Logan, who is a certified executive coach. She's the author of the Six-Figure Travel Writing Roadmap and co-owner of the Rosewood Writing Retreat Center, which is in the Catskill Mountains of New York. She's also a freelance writer whose work has appeared in USA Today and the Dallas Morning News. Hi, Gabby. Thanks for talking to us today. Hi. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you because this is something, this freelance writing is something that I have I've gone down this path. I'm really interested in learning more about it, and I know a lot of other bloggers who listen to this podcast would be interested in it because there are a lot of bloggers that do want to turn their career into being a freelance writer. But I think a lot of us, including myself, are just baffled by how you you make a, a good living from this because a lot of what we hear is that it's it's not easy to do that. So looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But first, let's start off just telling us a little bit about you and how you got into travel writing. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you were saying that a lot of bloggers, you know, want to become freelance writers and are baffled how to do that because I started out before I left my full-time job, I had a food blog and it started out because I was having these dinner parties and people wanted the recipes that I was having at the dinner parties. And so then I created this website that was around dinner parties and how to have them easily. And I would share recipes and menus and things like that. And I had a timeline for when I was going to leave my job. So to me in my head, I was using my blog as a way to, you know, amass clips, practice using WordPress, practice writing, you know, on a regular basis, practice writing web-oriented content and all that stuff with the eye to leaving my job and becoming a freelance writer. And then what I found, as I'm sure many of you who have blogs have found, and this was 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, actually, Mm -hmm. so it was easier to run a blog back then, is that running a blog is a lot of work, and that's its own job. And to have that, and freelance writing means you really have two jobs. And what I found was that I had to, at a certain point, make a choice that if I was going to be a blogger as my main thing, that was a lot of getting back to people's comments, staying up on plugins. I had to be able to make the meals not during dinner parties, but during the day to photograph them in good light, to be able to put them on my website, and all of those things. And I realized that what I wanted, the reason that I wanted to be a freelance writer was that I wanted to be free, that free part. And I wanted to be able to travel places and explore them and not be beholden to the internet all the time. So I actually realized that if I could set up my freelance writing where I knew what my work was going to be, I knew when it was due, and then I could have all of that time to myself in the middle, you know, of course, assuming the work gets done, that that was actually a better fit for what I was looking to do long term. And I've seen a lot of people come to me because they perhaps have had a blog for two years or 10 years. I see both actually. And they either started their blog for the same reason I did, that they intended it to be a springboard for their freelance writing, or because somebody told them, oh, you want to be a freelance writer? You have to start a blog first, which is the worst advice ever. If anybody tells you that, send them to me and I will set them straight. On the flip side is that people who have been doing it for a long time 
because they started their blog and they've been working on it and now they're looking for what's next. So I see people in both of these two spots. And the thing is that unless you are completely committed to freelance blogging for companies, a lot of the skills that we build up as bloggers are not actually super transferable to freelance writing. Unfortunately, Good point. Mm-hmm. yeah, and it's like we have such great expertise about, you know, the ins and out of WordPress, or you know how exactly Google wants posts to look these days, or what photos work and don't work, or what leads on a blog post work or don't work, what headlines get people to click and not click, and those aren't the same things that you do when you're writing, whether you're freelancing for magazines or other editorial websites, because those things are done by the editors of those websites. We're the editors of our own websites, but all of that stuff falls to the editors of the other sites who know, or at least think that they know, their audience and what their audience wants and what works on their own site. So we're kind of in a place where we have to figure out what's our, you know, what do we bring to the table. So what that looked like for me was that as I got more into freelance writing, I started by looking for gigs online and, you know, taking what I could find there and kind of building up my portfolio of things that I had written so that I had more clips to send to new editors I was pitching and all of that. I found that every new place that I wrote for had its own rules. So for a while, I was writing for a pretty big website that was a spin-off of a print magazine, and I was doing a lot of posts every week for them. And there was a certain way that the editor wanted to edit things. There was a certain time frame in which I had to send her ideas that had to get approved. I had to get them in at a certain time based on this, that, and time zones, and all these other things. But then I had another website that I was working for where I'd send the editor a list of ideas. She might approve seven of them. And then I can basically get them in as fast as I can or, you know, whenever. And it'll go through some edits and there's not exactly a time that I need to get back to them with the edits. So everyone's quite different. Mm -hmm. So what I found for myself was what made the most sense for me to actually have an income doing this was to line myself up with the places where, like I was talking about before, about wanting to travel and not be beholding to my computer all the time, where the way that those particular freelance writing opportunities worked lined up with the way that I wanted to work. Because if I was writing, for instance, for a magazine, and this and this has happened, if I was writing for a magazine where I had to do 15 different interviews for a series of three articles I was writing, and I only had three weeks in which to get all of that done, that's a lot of time that I have to spend figuring out who I'm going to interview, writing them and, and getting them to agree to get on the phone with me, scheduling that out to get them on the phone with me, and then hoping that those all get done in time that I have more than 12 hours before my deadline to put all those articles together. And for me, you know, that was, that was a way to earn money and a way to get published, but it wasn't something that fit in with what I was looking for out of freelance writing. So I, I basically kind of got to the point where I was like, okay, I can do this, but I want to do this in a way where I have a good career. So I got really intentional about actively pitching people from scratch and not just magazines, but also companies. So I would go through, for instance, like the travel and leisure list of the top, you know, travel specialists. And I would pitch all the ones in the countries that I knew well and say, hey, I mean, I would be more complicated than this, but I'd say, hey, can I write your blog or can I do your newsletter? Can I do these things? And then they were like, oh, yeah, I don't have time for that, actually. You know, how, how would that work? How much would it cost? And we'd get on the phone and I'd talk to them about what they were struggling with. And then I could put together a proposal that fit 
what I wanted to do. So I could say, yeah, I'll do you know, 10 posts a month and two of them will be really story oriented because I wanted to practice writing more narrative stories. And you know, two of them will be itineraries because I thought that would be fun and I'd want to have clips for that. And so I moved into this thing of building my contracts for freelance writing around things that I wanted to write about and types of writing that I wanted to be doing and getting paid on the first of the month and having the terms of who approved what and all those things work for me. So that was kind of my evolution over time as a freelance writer. And then people wanted to know how I was doing that and being paid well. And so then that grew into helping other writers learn how to do the same things for themselves. Okay. Great. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because for right off the bat, you were saying that it's bad advice to start a blog, and, and that's what we hear a lot of the time is if you want to become a freelance writer, start a blog first. And, and that's a good point, though. There's so many things as the editor of a blog and maintaining a blog that you have to know that don't apply to being a freelance writer. Um, but what when the, one of the things that you said, too, that I was really interested in is um, – you said you were you were starting to pitch, but I'm wondering, were you writing for free in the beginning just to get the clips? Yeah, so I, I'm trying to remember if I ever wrote 100% for free because it's been a little while now. I think when I still had my blog, there was some things that I was doing almost like a regular column or like guest posts more so than writing published things for free. As soon as I wasn't working anymore, that stopped right from the outset when this became my full-time thing that everything I has to do that I do has to have an income and that was one of the other reasons that setup isn't quite the right word but that I had to make that decision about my blog I had to say being realistic about the projections of how would I monetize this blog would I set up an online cooking school would I travel and give parties how would that work and how long is that going to take me to earn money to make this worth it. That was also one of the things that for me kind of became a deciding factor. And that goes back to what you were just saying about, you know, when people say they want to be a freelance writer and some person that I that I would love to give a talking to somewhere tells them to have a blog. The idea that you're going to have a blog and something comes out of it, I mean, I'm sure most of us know, you're looking at like a two-year time frame it would be great for having, you know, your your income fully coming from your blog. Like that's that's a semi-realistic if you work really hard, right? Having your blog, you're writing for your audience and your style without an editor, without an editorial calendar, figuring it all out as you go along. If you if that's how you get started with editorial writing, you're missing out on the opportunity not only to be writing for somebody who has experience with that, who has experience with putting together editorial calendars and knowing what ideas do work for an audience and being able to improve your writing and tell you, you know what, I like this piece, but this lead at the beginning of this article, it really is not as grabby as it could be. You're missing out on that opportunity on your blog and also your patterning habits that might not be the best that you're going to have to unlearn later. But the other thing is that you can not only get that insight, but you can get it and get paid. Because what happens when, you, when you're starting out with freelance writing, not so much with blogging and guest posting, but with freelance writing and writing for sites that don't pay, you're missing out not just on the money, but you're missing out on the things that you should be getting when you're being published, which is having an editor that's really invested in this article being as good as it can be because they're paying you money and so it matters to them that they get the best product out of it. And also a lot of these websites that don't pay, it's on the one hand, they're 
often going to be asking you to submit an article in advance without pitching, which means you haven't even had someone workshop that idea with you and see if that idea makes sense before you spend the time writing it. And then often, if you send it and it doesn't work, they're also not even going to tell you why. So you're missing out on all these learning opportunities to get better in addition to the money. And so that's less than whether you need money or not. That's why when I talk to people, I always tell them to skip the places that don't pay, unless it's like a literary journal or something super prestigious, because mm -hmm. it's not just the money that you're missing out on. Even if you don't need the money or you say, well, I don't need the money right now, or this opportunity is more important to me than the money, you're missing the things that should come with publication that you might not realize are the important parts of being published until you've actually had them. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really important. I, I didn't really think about that with the feedback. You research and you find the editor to email, and you're just pitching them your story ideas. You're not part of like a Facebook group um, that, that has editors in it where they do a call for pitches. I know there's a lot of those. So you don't, do you just ignore those and you're just kind of like, here are my story ideas, and you're just pitching them to the editors? That's a fantastic question, and thank you for raising the, this thing about Facebook groups. Because I've seen a lot of people, when I started freelancing, there was no Facebook group where editors hang out and put calls for pitches. But I think people have gotten really reliant on this. I've heard this from a lot of people because actually like on my newsletter, I send out a list of travel writing jobs every week, and I also have a database of how to pitch different magazines. And it always shocks me how often people ask me about pitches they're writing, and it's, always, and it's like only a pitch to a call for pitches they've seen in a Facebook group or something. Because mm -hmm. the, the thing about any, any business of any kind, like forget about freelance writing for a second, is that you're going to have the best opportunity for success, for finding customers, when you're offering something that nobody else around you is offering in an area where people really need that thing. So if you're responding to whether it's a normal online job ad or a call for pitches on Facebook, you are responding to somebody whose inbox is currently being deluged with a ton of pitches about just this one thing. So maybe right. they have a big maybe they have a big need like maybe they really need a story on that topic or that place or whatever but you have a very small chance of standing out like if you don't get back within the first 2 hours you might have zero chance of standing out for instance cuz they're just sick of getting these emails but you also are in a place where the person putting up that call for pitches is trying to maximize their opportunities to get the very 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 best thing so it's just a hyper-competitive marketplace. And I know so many people that get no responses from those whatsoever. But the irony is that there's one person that I coach, and she has this really cheeky kind of thing that she does where she saves those all in a file, and then like six months later, she goes and she pitches all those editors and just says like, hey, like I just wanted to see, do you need anything? Or she sends them a new pitch. And by then, they probably do need something. But they don't need something anymore if you weren't one of the first two people to see that thing on Facebook groups. So the way that I really recommend to go about pitching, it's interesting because if you think about it, it makes so much sense, but not that many people do it. So it actually makes it really easy for you to be that one standing out in a field without very much competition, which is that you take a magazine. Let's say I'm going to make up a totally made-up example here, but let's say you pick up your local edible magazine. 
And in that Edible magazine, there is a section every month, which is a profile of a local farmer who's doing something interesting. Okay? Mm -hmm. So you, the first thing you do when you, when you pick up any magazine that you want to pitch is you say, okay, how, which sections, which articles in this magazine are written by members of staff and which ones are written by other freelance writers? Because your absolute number one opportunity to get a no is if you pitch a section that's always written by the same staff person because there's just, it's not open to freelance writers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't even check that. And then they pitch an editor and an editor says no. And then they feel like, oh my God, I'm never going to pitch this editor again. Oh my God, that idea was horrible. Oh my God, I'm horrible. But it's because they pitched something the editor had no way to say yes to. So that's step one. And then let's say you're looking at this section that's a profile of a farmer doing something interesting and you see that it's written by freelance writers. Then the next thing that you want to do is that you want to pitch an idea exactly for that section. So you want to find a farmer doing something interesting and say, hey editor, did you know that even though foraging for mushrooms is a big trend right now, it's so much easier to get mushrooms when you grow them at home, and that's not a very hard thing to do when you have a mushroom kit from farmers like so-and-so. And then you talk about you know, so-and-so's farm and how he doesn't just grow mushrooms, but he grows mushroom kits for people to use in their own homes, so they have a constant supply of quote-unquote local mushrooms. And the editor's like, oh, we haven't covered a mushroom farmer and certainly not a mushroom farmer who grows mushroom kits like this is really interesting this totally would work for my section and so that's how you become that person who's standing kind of alone in the field or that you know the tall tree in the middle of all the grass in the field is not just by finding an editor and finding their email address and sending them your article idea but by looking at what are they already publishing what do they need every single month that they probably don't have any more ideas for? That's the way that you can get in to a magazine really quickly and really easily. And I did that actually. I got my first dollar word assignment in a, a national magazine. And it was actually a $2,000 assignment because I got paid for the photos as well. And it was, it was a magazine that's not about travel, but they have t it's about tea. It's tea time. And they have two travel sections. So they have like a big travel feature and they also have a multiple page thing just about tea in a certain city. And I looked at what they had covered. The first pitch that I sent them was something they had done similar in the past, but they said it was a little too like adventurous for them because they're kind of like a doilies and tea type of magazine. And then the next one I pitched them was Boston because the Boston Tea Party anniversary was coming up. But sure enough, that was such a great idea that she had already assigned it to another writer. And then the next thing that I pitched them was taking tea in Sonoma in wine country and kind of uh, like high teas that incorporate wine elements. And I wrote the pitch like as a last ditch thing. It was like the third thing I had pitched this person. And I was on the plane to California. And I was just like, hey, I'm going to California this weekend. You want this? And she was like, sure. And that was how I got my pitch. But it was because... I focused on that section she was already publishing. Yeah, that's a great idea too. And then so have you ever had where you pitched an editor an idea and then you saw it come up later in the publication but not by you, like it was stolen? Or has that ever happened to you? Because I hear it happens a lot to writers. I also hear people ask that question or occasionally see complaints about it. Now there's two things going on here. So one is that 
like what I just said about that Boston Tea Party thing, right? It was let's already say, fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but let's but let's say that that writer or that editor didn't get back to me, or let's say that editor just wrote back no or something like that. Then I, as the writer, could really easily see that later and be like, oh, they stole my idea. But it's an idea that the editor already had, or that another freelancer already had. And like there is one magazine that I didn't pitch them this, but forever I wanted to pitch um, a far a feast column on a certain type of food, but I just wasn't sure if it would work. And then one year I'm in the airport on the way to India, no less, where this where I was thinking of pitching the story about, and there I see like the Afar feast column on exactly what I was thinking of pitching them. Editors often get really bristly when they get this question from writers because editors are in the idea business, and so are we as freelance writers. But they have to have 25 ideas for every section of their magazine and pick only one of them every month. And so a lot of times writers will pitch something and something that has to do with that topic will come out, but it's not the same story even that that person pitched. So I will say there is exactly one instance. Okay, there's two. There's one instance where a writer that I know saw her exact words from her pitch be used, but it was not in the magazine she pitched. It was in a different magazine that it hmm. seemed like, because it was her exact words, right? Yeah. It seemed like one editor sent the pitch to a friend of hers, and then what happened in between is a little fuzzy. So that's one really disgusting sort of thing that I've seen happen, which is not cool. And another thing that I can't tell you who it was, because I was told this kind of like off the record, is that there is one magazine that has a big spreadsheet of every idea they've ever been pitched and all of the information about it for them to write the pieces in-house. Those are the only two verified times where I've ever seen this happen. Like I said, most editors are, that, are, that are cool people that you would want to work with in the first place are just as, if not more, horrified by this than we are because they actually understand like, the copyright implications of it. But the flip side is that the really big magazines, magazines that pay even like $2 a word and things like that, have a way of dealing with this. If they think that your idea is really cool, but they just don't think that you're the person to write it, they'll pay you something called an idea fee, which is a couple hundred bucks that they'll pay you to then go and write that story in-house. Oh, I never knew about that, and I don't think a lot of people knew about that. That's interesting. That's more like really big magazines like I, I don't know if I've heard specifically of Bon Appetit doing it, but it's the kind of thing from like an Allure or an, or an O or Vogue or something like that. It's the kind of thing that big, big magazines do. Speaking of pitching, when you're pitching different, you're, you, let's say you have a story idea and you're pitching it to different places because I know, like I'll go on trips and I'll be like, oh, well, I have to find a home for this story. That's the language that we freelancers use a lot. And when you're pitching, let's say you're you're looking at different magazines to pitch, do you do very long pitches or do you find that short pitches, you know, like maybe three or four sentences do better? This is a really interesting time to ask that question because I've actually been watching just this current year, 2018, a shift in how editors talk about this. Hmm. So typically I say as a general rule of thumb, barring any specific publication or specific editor's personal preferences, that you want to make sure to always keep in mind the length of the final article with your pitch. Because this is something that I see quite regularly. Somebody sends me a pitch review and just eyeballing the pitch, I'm like, wow, I think this is pretty close to the number of words that this article is. So maybe they're pitching 
like a 400 word article and their pitch is 250, 300 words. So if you're writing a pitch that's inching up to the length of what the article is going to be, and the editor doesn't see that there is so incredibly much information in that pitch that it feels like a finished article, you have just put yourself automatically in the rejection box because you've shown an editor that you're not capable of writing the amount of detail that they would expect to see and the length of that piece. So with short articles, it's quite dangerous to write anything besides a very short pitch because you run the risk of showing an editor before you even have the chance to work with them on editing and learn from them as an editor that you're not ready for that task yet. Anytime you're pitching short, you want to, like you said, three to four sentences. You know, have a really snappy first line of like a statistic or some shocking fact or some interesting, you know, image about the food or how it's produced or something like that. Tell them what part of the magazine you're pitching it for. Tell them a couple other things that you'll mention in the piece. Like for instance, let's say it's, I want to say it's Server. There's some magazine that has a section called A Meal to Remember, and it's about 300 words, and it's the last article in the magazine. And you might say, I've seen things that look like the bottom of the ocean in an aquarium, but never on my plate until I arrived at Dos Palilos in Barcelona. And then say, I'd like to pitch you know, a Meal to Remember article on my 17-course dining extravaganza at Dos Palilos in Barcelona, uh, where even though they don't have a Michelin star or a celebrity chef, I was treated to a dinner the likes of which I've never seen in my life as a food writer. You know, I'm a, I'm a professional food writer based in blah, 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 and I've been published here, here, and here. Would you be interested in this story? That's all I would write for that pitch. If you're pitching a 600-word or 700-word, 800-word first-person essay, about your experience getting lost in a swamp in Alabama and finding that technology was no use to you, there's no cell signal, all of your kind of modern ways of traveling failed you and you needed to fall back on your Girl Scout skills. You're going to need to, in that pitch, write something a little longer and also first person that displays that shows to the editor that you're capable of carrying on that long and that many words in their publication in that tone of voice that the piece is supposed to be in. Whether it's the length or the tone, you want to think about your pitch mirroring what will need to be in the final piece, showing them that you're capable of doing that but also leaving them hanging. You want to leave them without some information. And I was at a conference with my friend who's the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle travel section, and I asked this question to him at the end of his keynote just so that everybody else could hear it. Because like I mentioned, editors really want shorter pitches these days. I was like, hey, so I know you said that you want a short pitch, like a couple sentences, but a lot of writers feel like there's so many things they want you as the editor to know or to understand in order to assign them that piece. So how can they, as writers, how can they not feel like they're leaving things out in the pitch to you? And he said, I'll just write you back and ask you if there's more things that I need to know. So it's so much better to write that, that succinct pitch that shows the editor you can write that kind of piece that leaves something to be said and catches their attention and get them to respond and ask you for more questions so you can have a conversation than to write 800 words with everything that you did in a destination or everything that a restaurant serves or every single thing that this craft, like craft chocolate person makes 
and have them not really understand what your story is about. And it's easier too to write short pitches because you're pitching totally. a lot of people. So that's that's perfect. That's wonderful. Um, I, I do want to move on and talk about some other forms of writing, but I do have one last question with regards to pitching for magazines and websites. Gabby, is is there any room for negotiation? Because a lot of times the editors will say, "This is what we're paying, and that's it." But is there any way to negotiate a higher price? You emailed me about this, and I was so shocked because when you emailed me, you said, yeah, so often you know, they say that's all we can afford. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it comes down to the phrasing of the question because I have seen a couple people that I know, a couple writers that I know from online get double the rates or get quite a few other things. And so I wonder if it comes down to the phrasing or I wonder if it's about the kind of magazines because – I've been in situations myself where I've asked for more and gotten dramatically more. I've been in situations myself where I haven't gotten more. And the thread that I can for sure tell you that differentiates those two places goes back kind of to what we were talking about earlier, which is that the places that can't give you more also tend to be sticklers and obnoxious and not writer-friendly in other ways. So one place, for instance, where I asked for more and they couldn't give me more, they later gave me more because I wrote for them for a long time. But we ended up ending our relationship because they didn't have a contract for writers. They kind of had guidelines. And they were buying only first rights to the piece. And then one day, the Friday before American Labor Day holiday, long weekend, they sent out a change to their writer's guidelines that now without paying us any more money, they were buying all rights to the piece to use that in all sorts of other forms of ebooks and different things that they were going to be using. And I wrote back and I was like, this isn't cool. Like you need to pay twice as much for this. And my editor said, look, you know what? Like I can tell my publisher this, but he thought that we were buying all rights the whole time. So there's nothing I can do. So typically if you can't get more money from people, that's a weird situation. But typically you can choose to push on a different button. So typically if somebody is not going to be able to give you more money, then you want to push on the rights. Or you another thing that you can use is that you can say, okay, well, you know, this is less than my usual rate. Can we kind of agree to this as a two article thing? Like I'll send you some other ideas and you can pick one of those. And then if I know I'm getting two articles out of this, then I'll be able to accept that lower rate. So that's another thing that I've seen people do. When a magazine is really stingy about stuff, they're probably going to be asking you to do more edits and more other things and generally kind of be a pain in the butt to work with. So that's also a good sign for you to think about how much do you really want this clip. But with other editors who are more, who are in publications where they're used to working with more professional writers who will always negotiate, then you can usually say this, whether you have a quote unquote typical rate or not, say, hey, um, I'm so happy that you're interested in my piece that's a bit below my typical rate. Could you do X? Or are the photos also included? Because if so, I'll need Z. But if you don't have a typical rate, then you can say like, I would need this for that article, right? So there's a lot out there of what is the rate for you. And that's created by how you communicate with the editor. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah, I'll definitely keep that in mind. I think people are going to be so interested in this because a lot of People I talk with that are freelance writers, they just take whatever the rate is that they're given. But a lot of them are people that I talk with that are in these Facebook groups that are only responding to calls for pitches. So 
um, I guess we need to all start just pitching independently out of the Facebook groups. So that was terrific advice too, Gabby. It's, it goes back to the same thing of like when you create the market versus when there's other people around. So like that editor that said like the publisher is, is not going to give more. He was like, because in his mind, I could just get another writer. And even though I was doing like 20 articles a month for this magazine, the publisher didn't think of writers as something of value. So to him, it didn't really matter if he loses one. So it's also like putting yourself in a place where the value is clear about what you bring to the editor, whether that's a specific idea or your background or your talent or just that you come across as really professional. Even that's a great value to provide. Let's move on and talk about some other forms of freelance writing that you can do. I mean, I think a lot of people think about just writing for print publications and websites, but you know, you've talked about things like web content and newsletters. Tell us a little bit about how you would get into that, especially if you really don't have a lot of experience doing that. Well, the thing is, we all, I mean, especially if you have your own blog, we all have experience with web content, and we tend to just not think about that as something that's transferable to a company setting. And when I talk to people who, for instance, you know, have been running a blog for a really long time, and they just don't know where to start, and Maybe they're having trouble with, with editorial stuff. Like maybe it's not getting off the ground and maybe it's because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like they're really used to writing for their audience in their way, and which is not the same thing as writing for someone else's audience. So in those cases, it's really useful to think about how you are with your blog and all of the different hats that you have to wear and all the different things that you have to do and the different SEO and plugin and Pinterest and whatever updates that you have to keep on top of and how you are not able to be on top of all of them all the time as much as you feel like maybe you should. And then to think about somebody who, for instance, runs a food tour company and to think about that for them to run their food tour company, they not only have to be up on you know, just these HR aspects of hiring people and what, you know, do they have to provide these people benefits, but also what type of insurance do they need? If people are paying them to go into other people's establishments and order food, what do they need to do in terms of the buses? How do the buses, where do they come from? Who drives them? How do they schedule that? Like what's the insurance on that? What happens if a bus breaks? And so on and so forth. And then think about the fact that for these people, their web content is like at the bottom of that pile, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, they're not going to get sued. Nobody will, hopefully. No one's going to die. Like, you know, it's, it's such a, a smaller fire for them. So even if they theoretically know that they probably should be doing something better on their website and that they would get more business if they did that, they don't really have the time to figure it out. So however much experience you feel like you don't have in terms of bringing this over, when you look at yourself against the type of people that you want to approach to do content work, you, have, you just know so much more about this stuff. I just two weeks back was at this conference for tourism boards for the directors of marketing for tourism boards. It was a big digital marketing conference and there was, there was great big people there. There was Denver and Philly and, and big cities and states. I was sitting next to the um, the director of marketing for the whole state of Montana, which is hosting a blogging conference next year. And I, I was talking to these people. And for instance, there was one talk that somebody gave on email marketing. Mm -hmm. This person has a list of, it's, a, it's like a top 10 city. I won't tell you which it is though. But this person has a list of about 28 or 280,000 people. They don't know anything about those people. They have one pop-up form on their website that you can sign up to get on one newsletter. 
and they don't know if these people are local. They don't know if they've already come to Philip or to sorry to the city that I'm not going to name, um, and they don't know if they're planning in the middle of planning a trip or if they're just thinking about it. So they send all of them the exact same information, and they only send it out twice a month because they don't. They, they don't prioritize enough to put somebody on their staff to send it more than twice a month. And this is like a huge city that could be doing so much with their email marketing, driving so much bookings. It would be really easy for them to share content that's being written about them, not even on their own website, but other places. But they just don't know how to do it in a way that's efficient. They're using like a really janky old email newsletter system that doesn't even really allow them to tag people. They don't really have the facility to make separate forms and all these stuff. So if you have any sort of email marketing going on your newsletter on your website, you know more than this city, which is one of the top tourism destinations in the U.S. Part of, like, part of feeling like you can approach those people is first just understanding your own value. And then the second part is just to go online and look and see who needs help. And to go back to what we were talking about before, just write them a pitch and say, you know, email marketing converts this much more. You know, all of the statistics show that email marketing uh, is the way that consumers, you know, prefer to hear from brands they love rather than Facebook ads and this, that, and the other thing. And then you say, you know, I, I can help a company, tourism board, whatever, like you, uh, with your email marketing by making sure you're on the right system, uh, creating a clear content plan for what we're going to put out in our, in our newsletters, and filling that every week and dealing with any responses as they come in. Do you have 15 minutes for us to hop on the phone next week and talk about this? And there you go. And then you're starting to talk to prospective content marketing clients and getting paid four-figure contracts on the first of the month every month. The tourism boards, they have money to spend. And food, the food lobbyist groups have a lot of money to spend. I mean, like that that's a great, like the dairy farmers of America, like those people are great. And I know a lot of people who make a great living doing photography for them or blog posts or white papers or whatever that is. So... Gabby, tell us about like your schedule and what do you do? Like, do you are you traveling on your own and then you just you pitch articles afterwards, or do you go on press trips, or how do you generate um, your story ideas? It's changed a lot for me over time, but I I tend to be an independent traveler for a couple of reasons. One is that. I want to be able to find things on the ground in a destination that I wouldn't know about online. And I find that if any of you on this listening to this call that have been on a press trip know, you, you don't get such deep opportunities for information even with the places that you are visiting. You know, you have 12, 15, 8, however many people trying to interview the same business owner or trying to get the same photo. You have to be somewhere else in 15 minutes. You don't have time to wander around and explore and ask questions. So I like to travel by myself also because I feel like I find more interesting stories that way. But I do occasionally go on trips, and the the thing that I do find useful when I go on trips is, and it's kind of a way that I evaluate what trips to go on also, is access to things that I would never have done otherwise. So I remember there was one trip in Spain where I was in a part of Spain that I kind of thought I knew. And we went to all these areas that I just didn't know anything about, I'd never heard about, I don't know how I would have found out about them otherwise. And without a translator, which was a bit interesting. But we got to chat with people who run, uh, for instance, like there was a big reserve where they're trying to revive the native chestnut tree population, which I think had been decimated by people using the chestnuts for furniture or things like that. And they were trying to kind of revive the chestnut as a local product and things like that. And those are just the kind of things that on the one hand, 
traveling independently, I tend to go to cities or if I have a car, like I'm quite deliberate about where I'm going and like maybe I'll pull over, but I'm not going to necessarily know something's there if there's not a good sign. So I do a little bit of a mix, but one, one thing kind of related to this that I often get asked is if I have ideas or if I pitch ideas before I go somewhere versus finding them afterward. If you have an idea, especially something like a whole destination, this has happened to me so many times. I go somewhere because I've heard it's whatever. It seems like it's going to be really historic and amazing, or it seems like a great beach destination, or it seems like it's so luxurious, and it's absolutely not. It's mm-hmm. absolutely not. There, I went to Detroit a couple of years ago because I just kept hearing about Detroit so cool and these great hipster places and maker movement and all these things. And we did find some great stuff, but not in enough of a saturation that I would send most types of travelers there and say, you want to go here for this thing. Like it was too scattered and you really had to go to specific things and it wasn't like you could just walk around and discover things. So I have learned from those experiences that I also like to go somewhere myself and have time to kind of figure out what's really there rather than just being shown certain things so that I can really decide if I'm comfortable, you know, putting my name on a piece, sending somebody somewhere. That's a good point, too. And, um, you know, a lot of the destinations now, too, if they do host you, they are adamant about, well, where is this going to be published, like before you can even go there. So I, I like the idea, too, of being able to travel independently to a destination that I want and be in my own time. And, you know, if I come back with a story, great. If I just come back with experiences, that's great, too. So Absolutely. I yeah. hear what you're saying with that. Now, I want to be respectful of your time because I know you need to go soon. But before you go, I want you to tell us about your writer's retreat. Yeah, so it was, it was actually a really funny way that it came about. I wanted a tiny house, as so many people do, or this was like <laughs> five years ago, as so many people mm-hmm. did five years ago. And I spent inordinate amount of time researching tiny houses and picking out the best ones and all this stuff. And, and I finally had decided one and gotten my husband on board with the actual purchase of this because they're kind of hard to finance, so you kind of have to pay cash. And so we picked one out, and this guy was going to drive it from British Columbia over to Quebec for us to pick up at the Vermont border. And we could not get a piece of land. Basically, all the land we were looking at in the deed said no mobile homes and technically a tiny house is a mobile home. And we were so sad and, and this went on for years that we were trying to find a piece of land and we finally switched to having a yurt instead of a tiny house because then it technically wasn't mobile and all these things. And then we ran into to yet a new issue which was that the even if we had a yurt in the place that we were looking out buildings had to be on electric and septic and all these different things that are really impossible to put into a yurt. So we said, let's be sneaky and buy a house that we don't care about and put the yurt in the back and we can just stay there. And then we found this seven bedroom house that was like stunning that they had completely dropped the price on because they were trying to get rid of it that was the same price basically as these little two-bedroom houses with not a lot of land that we were looking at and we just felt like how can we not buy this amazing like beautiful ridiculous house like what's going to happen to it if we don't buy it it's just amazing we got this house that has seven bedrooms and a 1400 square foot built-in pub and sauna in the basement and all this crazy stuff 
Oh my gosh, it's not like some haunted house or something, right? Like that's why. No, no. It's like it's only been in one family. It's Uh like this mid-century executive home. There's like an outdoor dining space, and we've built, we've made a little farm there, and everything. No, it's not haunted at all. It just was one of these things that the the father of this of this family built it. And then when he died, it passed on to his daughter, who was too old to really use it and was living in Florida. And it was just like this time capsule when we went to see it. It had all this beautiful, like, 1950s furniture and all this stuff. And so, yeah, so now we use it to run retreats. So I do writing retreats there, and my husband does as well. And like I said, we run, like, this farm on site. So all the food for retreats, like, I do all the cooking, and it'll be basically, like, 15 minutes before lunch. I go out and I cut the lettuce, and that's what's going to be our salad or the leeks or whatever it is that I'm pulling. So I do events there that are weekend or week-long focused on, you know, working on pitching or coming up with magazine ideas or learning how to go out into the field and do interviews and research and find those ideas and turn them into article ideas. And we also have the option for you to come just for a week on your own and do a residency to work on some big project of your own, whether that's, you know, finally getting pitches out or getting a bunch of blog posts done or video edited, whatever that is. And if I'm in the country and local, then there's also an option to like add that I'll prep all the food uh, for you from our garden and stuff like that so that you don't have to worry about your food and you can just put your head down on your laptop and focus and get a bunch of stuff done. Fantastic. Sign me up. I need to come out there, <laughs> get some writing done. I love it. It sounds amazing. Well, tell us how people can find you, your website, or how they can follow you on social media or sign up for your newsletter. Yeah, so my website that has our newsletter and different things like that, it also has the information about the organized retreats that we run, is dreamoftravelwriting.com. And the magazine database where we have lots of food magazines as well as travel magazines and things like that is travelmagazinedatabase.com. And on social media, I'm always Gabby Travels. Uh, And the retreat house is rosewoodwritingretreats.com as well. Awesome. Well, thank you, Gabby. I found this call so insightful. And thank you so much for being on the show because I think – what you've shared with us is going to help so many freelance writers. Really, really, it was good information, so we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, yeah, and I always hope, you know, sometimes you'll hear some, you know, bit of advice or like a tactic you can try or something, and it's not the right fit for you right now. And so sometimes it's really nice just to be exposed to different ideas and let them kind of brew around, and then one day that will be just the right thing for you and what you need to make a, make a big decision and do something great. I'd like to have you back on the show uh, maybe in six months or a year and we just can talk about how freelance writing has changed because I think this is an ongoing topic. But um, I'll I'll let you go for today and I, I thank you for your time. Thank you so much, yeah. And I look forward to be back and sharing some more great tips with all of you. Thank you for listening to the Just a Bite podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. See you on the next episode.